Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So we've got some Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah Ezra Naya, uh, That's which, really what the book hey, should be is, called. It is a single book. Why not just call <laughs> Zeru Ezra Naya? Um, and so, um, but uh, we'll we'll go through those and then uh, the end of John and the beginning of First John. And uh, once again, uh, we're in sort of this. Uh, continuous cycle of these three sort of main stories, I think that Nehemiah and Ezra talk about, uh, but we're towards the tail end of Zerubbabel. And uh, we hear about other prophets speaking, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, which we will read soon. Uh, but some of what they write actually is an important context as we get into some of these books. But um, Zerubbabel decides to proceed with building the temple, even though uh, they uh, had been on pause for a while, uh, and the people across the river, which are likely the Babylonians, they're probably across the Euphrates, um, are questioning uh, the the rebuilding of this of this temple. Yeah, and we learned that Darius is king now, and so we've read about him before from Daniel. Yeah, and uh, there's a letter once again to King Darius. They really are questioning it, but they still want to see the rebuilding of this temple. Uh, and, and they really want to make sure that Cyrus had actually given permission, uh, for Israel to do what they're going to do. It's very much, yeah, it feels very governmental, mm-hmm. super bureaucratic. <laughs> and, uh, we do find out Darius does some digging and finds evidence of Cyrus's edict. And so he orders, uh, to 10, uh, to, to, let them keep rebuilding. Not only that, but then he starts ordering them to financially support the project, which they probably didn't really want to do in the first place. Uh, and then even threatened um, that they would be impaled by their own roof beam uh, if they were to uh, get in the way and not offer support uh, for the Israel rebuilding project here. And so um, even any king or ruler would be killed uh, for for messing with this uh, edict. And so, uh, yeah, it's a pretty big threat by Darius to, to make sure the temple gets rebuilt. We see God again, using a pagan king to further God's plan and God's kingdom. And so let's apply this to modern day. We can trust that even if there are people or leaders who don't fear God, that God will use them for his sovereign plan anyway. So the threat works. uh, And we continue to hear that Haggai and Zechariah are still encouraging the Israelites. They finish in Darius's sixth year here. Um, And we have another sort of dedication ceremony. Um, Once again, uh, what what feels like it's missing in the storyline is God himself. God speaking, God's presence. This is dedication to the temple. We've we've seen the super fantastic ways that uh, the dedication involved God's returning or God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, but it just kind of feels oddly absent in the storytelling up to this point. And I'm not saying that people are screwing up by doing what they're doing. I think what they're doing is right and obedient, and God's instructed them to to build a house before, so they're just doing what they think is right. Sacrifices, priests are all good things, but maybe there's a lesson they haven't quite learned yet or a lesson that's going to be driven home in the storyline. Yeah. To me, when I read it, it felt anticlimactic. And I think there's a reason that it feels that way that we're starting to make a connection to. And once again, rightfully so, another moment of obedience, they celebrate Passover, which is great. Um, they, they, started the process with the Feast of Booze, ended the process with Passover. Um, and, and not only that, but this Passover feels multinational. We hear that also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship in the Lord. And so even those that have left their, their other people groups to worship Israel, like as if the purging of Israel has actually brought about some obedience and some um, um, connection to the law and the mission of God. 
I love the story of them celebrating the Passover. These people who had been in exile are celebrating the Passover, having just come out of a foreign land and being restored to their promised land. It makes us think of Egypt and and Moses and everything. So let's also remember again that we are exiles and we are part of building an unseen kingdom and we are God's temple here on earth. Yep. Uh, And then chapter seven starts with now after this which feels uh, very uneventful, but this is 60 years of time uh, that passes from what Zerubbabel was doing to uh, Ezra, uh, which is almost the length of uh, the whole time that we spent reading uh, in exile. And so um, about 60 years or so. And um, during this season, during the season of likely when they were in Babylon and right on the tail end of it, it was also the rise of sort of a synagogue system, the sort of replacement of we don't have the temple anymore. What do we do? Um, and this, the collection of remnant obedient Jews who have heard from the prophets who know why they ended up in captivity is because they didn't obey God's law and likely because they just didn't know it that well. And so they set off to have very diligent study of the law. Um, and this is probably where scrolls and text became much, much more common uh, amongst the people and um but as a as a side note um this this would also bring about the rise of things like pharisaism the sort of the desire to be obedient uh, ultimately leading to some extreme fencing or interpretation mm-hmm. of the law and so um we see in ezra some of that personality type both the this intense desire to know the torah and to be obedient to it but also maybe ways he might overshoot but we'll get there in a second uh, and ezra's in line with the high priest but he's a scribe so he's an expert on the law itself and interpreting the law um so he it doesn't seem like He's a priest per se doing priestly duties, but um, he's he returns with others who um, are connected to the temple. So gatekeepers and singers and things like that. Um, and, and he desires for them to know the law. Uh, and the chapter, once again, feels like a cycle that uh, they, they're told to go ahead, rebuild. Here's some financial support for the temple. Um, and even the king. Uh, recognizes that it's probably best that they obey the law. This king who has heard that um, that this group might try to rebel and that they've been rebellious in the past. And so maybe uh, Artaxerxes is simply <laughs> encouraging them to just be obedient and to not stir up too much trouble. Mm. Verse 10 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it. And we do see his zeal maybe get a little bit out of control with this, not balanced by love or understanding God's compassion or mercy in some regard. But I do really think this should be all of our commitments and all of our longings. And I know there's a unique call for Ezra, but let's model Ezra in our pursuit of seeking to study God's word, to do it and to teach it to others. Yeah. In chapter eight, we get a genealogy, but once again, this feels like the cycle um, where uh, the next thing we we hear is the groups of people, names, the families. But once again, it's also important for them uh, to understand um, who these groups are, who are the priests, who are all these kind of um, people groups who are going to be particularly running the temple. Mm Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, it seems like they've left the Levites behind, and so, um, and and so they're they're going to send for these Levites that seem to have gotten lost in the shuffle somehow. We can already see, though, Ezra's commitment to the law. He's insisting that the Levites are the ones who work in the temple. And so he rallies more to return to Jerusalem so they can actually do it instead of having non-Levites working in the temple. And as they wait, uh, Ezra had refused the king's protection earlier. And so uh, they're kind of sitting ducks along this river bend. And um, as this 
large group, but along this river and, um, this sort of faith in action, this moment, they, they decide to fast, they decide to pray, um, trusting in God to protect them, even though they don't have any sort of cavalry or anything like that from the King. I love how that in this picture, instead of asking for protection, they fast for it. And this is a really cool picture of Ezra with the discernment from God, seeing God be glorified through their walking in faith of God protecting them against their enemy on the way, on the on the journey. So this isn't something that we should always do. We need to do it with discernment, but it's definitely worth considering. Yeah, and they make it back to Jerusalem with all their goods, all the wealth that they've accumulated from the king, and they've set aside some priests to handle all the temple stuff, which is probably the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, once again, we, we kind of get to this climactic moment. This whole group of the temple workers have all returned to Jerusalem. Um, there's this great moment for for the establishment of the temple system, but but we don't really totally get there. Um, and, and not only that, but once again, like God is sort of oddly absent. We have this group of people come up to Ezra and complain that some of the people in Jerusalem have intermarried and Ezra decides he needs to do something about it. And Ezra ends up quoting Deuteronomy 24 in some ways, but it's a very kind of super strict reading of that text, a bit of a stretch and, and, and I think Ezra does legitimately lament the state of sin. I think all those things are, are true, but um, he, he ends up coming up with this idea that all these people shouldn't be married in this way, even though the text in Deuteronomy 24 only explicitly says the Moabites and the Ammonites. Yeah, it does feel extreme on some level. Of of all the things Israel has done around oppression, Ezra seems to get fixated on this idea of intermarriage. And at the same time, though, we see how intermarriage was a downfall of Israel in yeah. many ways around Solomon's wives or Jezebel. Ezra knows his scripture well, and he he knows the results of marrying outside, not just of their own race, really, but their own religion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and yet, like, who comes up with the idea that all these people then should ultimately get divorced? And once, and once again, in the text, it's not that God says this at all. Um, it's some random ruler that suggests this to Ezra. And it's interesting because around the same time, maybe a little bit just after this, we have someone like Malachi speaking to Israel. And, and Malachi said things like, look, Malachi does care about the holiness of his people, but he also explicitly goes out of his way, Malachi does, to say that God hates divorce. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what Ezra ends up doing is what we kind of see eventually in the New Testament sort of this tradition of the Pharisee, that there's a, a zeal for the law, but in such a way that has lost, in some ways, the spirit of the law. And yes, obedience matters. It absolutely does. But but if it leads to a, a way to not love your neighbor, or even more, to, to cause the, the, the weak or marginalized to suffer more, like kicking out women and children to 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 just leave them and abandon them is is the exact opposite things that the law gives a lot of specific instruction about and so this this edict becomes a way of like interpreting the law in such a way that that causes more marginalization and suffering and and i think ezra in his zeal becomes like a pharisee and misses the kind of heart the, the weightier things of the law yeah or giving the opportunity for salvation to these yeah. gentiles in the community so, and we get a list of those uh, who had intermarried. And I think we hear about some that leave and some that stick around. And so it feels like even the outplay of Ezra's edict was sort of like mixed. Yeah. And then we the end, end of Ezra. Ezra. Yeah. Um, and, and it's such a, yeah, it's such a peculiar book. And as I said, it seems like God is directing these Gentile rulers. And we do hear about Haggai and Zechariah. But other than that, God feels a little bit 
sort of absent in some of the storytelling. Um, and we do have the prophets and it'll be important for us to eventually read those prophets, which we will get to, but um, they become the voices that are speaking at this time. And maybe what they say versus what Ezra or Nehemiah or Zerubbabel are doing um, become an interesting context. Yeah, I do think Ezra ends kind of strangely, but I suppose it's technically not the ending since it's written with Nehemiah, Ezra Maya. But I did, like Chris said, love seeing the hand of God on these pagan rulers and them doing the work of commanding and permitting the rebuilding of the temple. And even the zeal we do see in Zerubbabel and Yeshua and Ezra who do all this work. So it's overall, I think some of the bright spots I can pull out is just an encouragement to hold fast to what I know of my faith. And even when it's countercultural or even when there's adversity to continue to trust God and be faithful and obedient to him. Yep. And then we get into Nehemiah. Uh, this once again, it probably doesn't need a long intro since we're kind of picking up from the first half of the book. Um, we, we, this happens maybe about five, 457 BC for Ezra, about 444 to Nehemiah. Same King is still on the throne in Babylon. And um, we get the start of what is kind of the third main movement of this book. Yeah, so we're looking at, yeah, like Chris said, a little bit more than a decade after Ezra. And um, it feels like Zerubbabel had built the foundation in the first book, and Ezra um, was part of the, the the finishing of the temple. But now Nehemiah hears about sort of the defenses of the city, the walls of the city, um, and it, it bothers him. It saddens mm-hmm. him. Yeah, so he's grieved and he goes to prayer. Yeah, and, and um, he admits to God as ancestors of sin that even the law of Moses spoke about that they would end up captivity, but the law also said if Israel was obedient, they would return from exile. So he wants that. Um, and we hear that Nehemiah is so close to the king that he's the cupbearer, which is really the person who would probably take a sip of the cup to make sure there's not poison in it, but he still had the closeness to the ear of the king. Yeah. This I hope as you read the book of Nehemiah, you're learning from Nehemiah's prayer life. We get a lot of prayers in here, which are great. And the way that Nehemiah responds to hearing about the pain around him or the destruction is that he goes to prayer and fasting. And then he looks back and remembers the work and the character of God, and it informs his prayers. So that's a good model for us as well. Yeah. I mean, it is a book used uh, a lot for teaching on leadership in the church um, that um, Nehemiah sets about in in almost a non-religious task, which is to to build the walls and, um, and him as a sort of leader doing that. And he is absolutely prayerful at moments. We're going to see him be kind of bold and deal with criticism and stuff like that as well. Um, and so, but, uh, to, to look at a leader in scripture who is also extremely prayerful, I think is a important thing to pull out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nehemiah, um, uh, the king notices that Nehemiah is sad and ultimately um, prays and, and kind of confesses that he would desire to go back home, uh, help rebuild the walls of his city. Uh, and the king grants his request. And Nehemiah asks for letters to save passage, timber, all these things that are given to him. This is just a crazy God intervention here. Any of Nehemiah's actions here could have been taken as disloyalty. But as Nehemiah remained faithful in prayer and trusted the Lord for the outcome, he's shown favor. And really note how the glory is given to the good hand of God and not the king, even as as this is being recorded. So he gets to leave his position for and return to Jerusalem for a time. So yeah. again, we see God at work through a pagan king. Yep. And Nehemiah gets there, but we also hear that there's adversaries, particularly from some of the surrounding nations. 
uh, and Nehemiah and sort of the, the darkness of night, even not telling his own countrymen, inspects the walls, sees that they're needing to be rebuilt, and the next day declares, let's, let's rebuild it. God's with us, King, even the king, uh, even the Babylonian king is with us to do this. Um, but the surrounding countries um, are still against Nehemiah, um, and Nehemiah is mocked in some of the ways in leadership. And one of the phrases I've always heard in leadership is, if you lead, you bleed. And um, if Nehemiah is going to step out and lead, there's going to be ways he's going to be attacked, just like Ezra was. And um, it, and sometimes there's always uh, adversaries to um, to leadership in any given moment, and Nehemiah experiences that. But there's once again, I said there's some, some tension to these books to me, and and. In Ezra, as I said, Zechariah and Haggai are sort of God speaking to Israel at mm-hmm. this time. And Zechariah says, I mean, just to quote Zechariah, he said, he said to me, run and tell the young man this, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Now, I wonder if Zechariah has said this like right around the same time that Nehemiah is sitting here going, I need to rebuild these walls. And 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 if it becomes like this odd pet project for Nehemiah to, to rebuild these walls and to defend the city, and he almost tells these people from other nations, like, you need to get out of here, um, when the very picture that Zechariah is painting for his people through God kind of prophetically is that Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. Nations are going to stream to it. And Nehemiah is kind of doing this, this sort of more defensive approach to how God's going to reestablish his city. And it's really interesting to consider and, and what it really looks like when you look at scripture as a whole. One of the things that I noted here or noticed was just the repetition of Nehemiah declaring that God's hand is upon them. And yet they are still facing a lot of people working against him. And this can be true for us as well. Just because God's hand is upon us or directing us doesn't mean that we're not going to face hardship or adversity or wonder if we'll make it through. And I think this is where we see the fruit of Nehemiah's prayer is that he trusts that God is going to remain faithful to his promise. Yep. And so they start rebuilding the wall. And once again, we get a cycle of almost like a genealogy of all these families who have different mixed tasks uh, about uh, how they're going to work on the wall. And I love here how everyone, no matter what their jobs were, they kind of stopped what they were doing and went to work on the walls. And so you have priests and leaders and servants and rulers all working alongside one another toward a common goal. And this is such a great picture of how the church should look even today. And so let's jump to John. Uh, once again, Jesus uh, has appeared to Mary in sort of this new creation sort of scene in a moment in the garden. Um, and then uh, now on the first uh, day of the week as well, we, we continue with that new creation uh, theme. And Jesus promises uh, the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them, which if you go back to Adam, that's that's how Adam was created. And so we're still getting sort of this um, new creation and creative um, kind of connection uh, to Genesis 1 and 2. Peace has been a big theme in this last section of John. John promised it in John 14 with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he continues to offer it. And of course, we know the disciples suffered tremendously, but the peace that is given by the crucified Christ is eternal peace and even a peace of spirit no matter what. Yeah. And then we get Thomas, who uh, I would argue gets a little bit of a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Not that the disciples don't have some sense of doubts, but come on. I mean, the, the resurrection of a person uh, is not a common thing. And so, uh, but we hear these two disciples tell Thomas about it, and, and he basically says, "Look, if I if I don't see it, I, I don't I will never believe it um, or believe in." Um, and and Sarah brought up a good point prior to this uh, podcast, and and when we were talking, and like sometimes it's really hard to read the intonation of Thomas. It's like he hopeful that Jesus lets him in to see it as well as he um, just cynical and doubting, like as often we interpret Thomas. I, I, I don't know because Thomas still sticks with the disciples. He's not falling away per se in his doubting, um, and Jesus ultimately honors sort of this 
this statement from Thomas to, to show up and to be like, here are my wounds. Maybe Thomas was hopeful to be able to have the same vision that they had. Mm-hmm. So. And he needed some extra confirmation, it looks like here, of Jesus's resurrection. And yeah. to me, that's okay. I think we often need these things as well. And the, this is why we need to gather with our church body. We need to run after Jesus and obedience in community, uh, because the community is what helps us overcome our doubt and walk by faith. Yeah. Yeah. And which, which ends up being sort of the point. It's like, Thomas, you, you got to see this, but gosh, how much more blessed when it's like just faith uh, yeah. when they don't see and yet believe. Mm. Uh, and then John kind of tells us the purpose of his book and why he's mm-hmm. writing, just saying that there were all these amazing things that Jesus did that I, I didn't even write down. Like there, there's so much more he could have said. Um, and John has presented Jesus so that he gives us its like mission statement of yeah. that the audience would believe in Jesus and that they would have life. Yeah. So belief is such a key concept in this book and really the reason John wrote the book. So step back for a minute. What do you believe? And and how would you articulate that belief? And has that even changed in doing this to your Bible or even just studying the book of John? Yep. So the end of John, right? Oh, wait, we got a whole nother chapter that feels kind of thrown mm-hmm. in at the end after he wraps up uh, his story. And I, I think John is giving, um, and maybe he he wrote it kind of just after the fact uh, a little bit, uh, giving Peter a finale to his story. I think John's wrapping up a few strings in his own story. Um, and when we see the finale of Peter, that um, another gospel writer like Mark finishes with Peter denying Jesus, and we never get a restoration of Peter. Um, but this story... Um, is, is told and, and it feels a lot of place because like earlier, like take Luke, Luke tells the story of Peter fishing on one side, then pulling up the other side and catching a ton of fish at Jesus's command. So um, I don't know if this is happening twice or John's just telling the story here. Um, but this becomes in some ways the commissioning mm-hmm. of Peter and the restoration of Peter all in one um, that he's no longer denying Jesus by the fireside, but now he's being restored by Jesus near the fireside. Yeah, John is definitely strategic in bringing up that charcoal fire again. Uh, The last time we saw that was when Peter denied Jesus. But we see Peter's humility in seeking out restoration with Jesus. I love how he like jumps out of the boat and tries to swim there. And who knows if he swam faster than the boat or not. But there was this eagerness to come and be restored and see how things were going to work out. So no matter what your sin, come to the sun and seek forgiveness and restoration. And and I think that's one of the big differences we see between Peter and Judas, too, is that uh, Peter repented and sought restoration and reconciliation and Judas didn't. Yep. And instead of three denials this time, we get three sort of uh, commissions and, and affirmations that Peter's going to be the one to go and feed the sheep. And although Peter's not Pope per se, in terms of uh, certain authority or access to God, um, he is commissioned as one of the early pillars of the church and becomes one of the really the main primary leaders in the early church. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jesus is coming along this 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 rock, this pillar within his community and saying, look, you are going to go do these things. Yes. You denied me. Yes. That was shameful and sin and broken, but I've restored you and I've forgiven you. Now go feed my sheep. Yeah. Jesus doesn't demand Peter to be perfect, uh, but he does call him to love him with his whole self. And that's the same for us. And I, and I like sort of how even John sort of wraps up his own uh, kind of story here where, um, Peter's going to be killed in a certain way, but but John, uh, if you don't know church history, uh, John ends up being basically the only um, apostle who's not um, persecuted. He's not a martyr. Um, he's persecuted, but he's not yeah. a martyr the same way that the other disciples are. And um, and there's probably like people questioning, like John, are you immortal? Or John, um, maybe you're not really one of the insiders. And, and John just kind of wraps it up to say, like, look. Uh, 
Jesus said, Peter's going to die one way. And he said, simply said to me, I'm not going to die the same way. So calm down guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to die probably too. Um, I'm not immoral. So yeah, it's, it's a funny way to kind of finish up the book. Yeah. And just following Peter's part of the story too, is that we still see Peter in process, you know, he yeah. gets this amazing call and has this amazing, you know, restoration and then starts to ask about other people. And I read, um, a fully restored Peter is not a fully transformed Peter. And that's a process for all of us as well. Yeah. So final thoughts on John. I just want more time to study the book of John. I feel like I just scratched the surface. There's so many themes like light or water or peace, but I just didn't have the time to dive into them as we're going through this. Um, But all that said, I really love how John was written more to second generation Christians and emphasized, he emphasized different things because of that. So belief is going to look different for those who are born into faith rather than those who convert at an older age. And belief also looks different for non-eyewitness Christians as well, which is what we are. So I just have a lot to learn about this theme of belief and some of John's other themes throughout this book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rich book. And and I would argue that sometimes the idea that John was just trying to fill in the gaps is just a wrong way to approach mm. John. Um, and, and we left so much out of the podcast, but like yeah. John, if he's likely writing to Asia, which is a place like Ephesus, which is very different than Asia Minor, which would have been a, a much more Jewish kind of part of town. Like he's done with a lot of Greeks. And so things he says that don't make sense. Like he's probably reading Matthew and being like, Matthew just won't work here amongst these very Greek people. And reading Mark being like, Mark's so Roman, it's just not going to work here. And and John does some things that are very, very both Greek and Jewish all at the same time with some of his I am statements, even his opening talking about the word, uh, the logos um, is doing these tremendous things and overlaying these things. And not only that, but he, he weaves Genesis throughout his book. He, he, even the story of Jesus and Jacob have a ton of parallels and how John tells it as if Jesus is the new Israel. And so mm-hmm. um, John's just an excellent practicer, I would argue of, of sort of gospel fluency to be able to, mm-hmm. to connect the, the story of Jesus to the, the culture and the things that are just ordinary and plain and his use of images and vines and all this kind of stuff, like, and just connecting Jesus as the boor, the better and truer version of just about everything in the world. Um, and it's encouraging and challenging to me to be able to, to be able to do that and connect the dots and, and take things that the world would understand and go, hold on, let me, let me connect that to Jesus and tell you why Jesus is a better version of what you're putting your hope in. Um, and I think John does that tremendously in his gospel. Yeah. That's, I want to add one more thing as you're talking about that. There's so many, individual conversations Jesus John records in his book between Jesus and others. And I think he gives such a good picture on how personal Mm -hmm. and intimate Jesus was with different people, whether that's Nicodemus or the woman at the well or Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. But we learn so much about interpersonal interactions with one another in Christ-like ways through this book of John as well. So we head into First John, uh, which uh, I think General Academia is still on board with uh, First John being written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll deal with Second, Third, and uh, Revelation a little bit differently, but um, John seems to be addressing some Gnostic controversies, which Sarah told you last week. If you take a moment, maybe look up some of the the way Gnosticism works. Um, particularly, I think there's a, a tie into docetism, which is this denial of like a physical presence of Jesus, that Jesus was simply a spiritual being. Um, and John is really heavy throughout his letter on the idea of love, particularly truth and love and how they're connected uh, through the letter, as well as things like light and dark and other themes. So the point of this book seems to really be addressing this sort of Gnostic belief, which is this um, sort of 
extra, I don't even know, you probably, Chris, can describe Gnosticism better than I can, but this like extra sort of understanding that only certain people have access to. And so what John is getting to is this idea that he wants everyone who's reading it to know that they have what they need to have eternal life. And something else um, I read is just that it's this style of first John, it's going to be very rhythmic and cyclical, cyclical. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of compare it to a symphony because it moves back and forth between subjects and themes. It's not, I mean, it's a letter, but it's also just kind of like this poetic sermon. Yeah. Yeah, and so right from the get-go, I, I think John's choice of language right from the get-go is dealing with sort of some of the Gnosticism, as if um, he, he's saying, like, look, this wasn't like a, a spiritual out-of-body experience. Like, we saw a real, physical Jesus come into this world. Like, we literally saw him. We interacted with him, and he is life. Life took on this physical flesh. We were witnesses to this. This isn't special insider knowledge. This isn't something that only comes through, like, this, this special spiritual tingly thing, like this is real. And and Jesus really walked and, and he says, and I'm writing you about this so that you know, like we, the, 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 the apostles, John, his community has fellowship with the father. And he's like, I don't want you to have that same fellowship. I want you to be in fellowship with us and have that fellowship with the father as well. So we see John in this first section stating two different goals, and he's inviting the readers, first of all, into further communion and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Bride, which is the church, so that their joy may be completed. And so this is a reminder and encouragement to us that there is a true sweetness in fellowship that we are to lean into. And our fellowship with God is connected with, to our fellowship with others. Yep. And he moves into his dark and light uh, language, pointing out that God himself is light, which also... I mean, even even in a Greek context, that would have totally made sense. As much as also in a Jewish context, that that darkness is danger and sin and negative things, and light is good and pure. And so, um, and so his instruction then is to walk in the light and walk really in the instruction as Jesus has, because he Jesus was in the light. So we walk as Jesus. You want to know what light looks like? Look to Jesus and walk that way. And what does that involve? Well, part of it, even in this intro, is to deny, not, not that we wouldn't deny darkness in us. We would confess sin, repent, bring those things into light and walk as Jesus walked. He emphasizes that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ and we are forgiven for our sins. Yeah. And so the life of a believer is one of acknowledging our brokenness and then receiving forgiveness for where we fall short. It is not a life of perfection or claiming we don't need saving. Right. So as we own our shortcomings to the one uh, we love, of course it's going to be painful, but confessing and receiving forgiveness from sin has really got to be the heart of our spiritual walk. Yeah, and, and John continues to build off of what, what Sarah just said. He kind of jumps back and forth. He'll he'll remind us to say, like, look, you you and I sin. There's tremendous grace for that. There's propitiation for that sin, as he uses that word uh, in chapter 2. Um, but then he kind of swings back and he's like, but, but we also be, we, we should be obedient. There should be mark on our lives of obedience towards Jesus. And mm-hmm. almost this very rabbinic thing from John of we walk as Jesus walks. We, we follow in the footsteps of him as our rabbi. Uh, we're to live as Jesus lived. Yeah, the message translates a portion of this. It says, anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. And this is a challenge for us and should be deeply convicting. So pray and ask the Lord, where am I not loving others the way that you love me? And ask the Spirit of God to help love others as Christ loved you. Yeah, because he... John moves into that new commandment idea that that the love of God is sort of the essential piece here. If you do not love, you do not walk in the light. And and it's a pretty 
strong statement about the connection between light and what what sometimes even gets identified as true, what is true, and love itself. And John uses some parallels to talk about the whole church, younger in the faith, mature in the faith, with these like older men and younger people and children. And so, um, but John ultimately lays out to to them who they are in Christ because I think he's preparing us for the next section of verses in that sort of weird prophetic or a poetic justified section of your text as you ended the last week and, and reminding them who they are before they start talking about how to the sort of yielding to the temptations of this world mm-hmm. uh, that John wants confidence for his readers of who they are in Christ before he deals with temptations. Yeah. Loving God means loving others and our love for God will overflow and how we care for those around us. So what minor things are keeping you from loving others? Is it someone's political views or annoying habits, or you're maybe not entertained by their teaching style? All of this should compare, should pale in comparison uh, to the, to the one who is a light of the world showing us his love. Yep. So Psalm 38, So this kind of seemed like a prayer from Job or Nehemiah, just crying out from the depths of despair and their own sin. Yeah, yeah. The psalmist is certainly identifying sort of suffering and it's like, God, are you punishing me? Whatever this may be. And so um, he's willing to wait on the Lord, but he also asks the Lord to hurry up in the process. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us can relate to that. And Psalm 102. Uh, The author here is also crying out because of all that's broken and hurting, but he remembers that God has not forgotten his people. And so we can just continue to remember that we are all destitute in our prayer because we have nothing to bring to the table. God hears us through the work of Christ. So it really helps lift my eyes to the work of Christ. Yeah. I mean, it's a great text, but it also feels repetitive of a number of Psalms of the psalmist crying out because of enemies, because of suffering, but reminding himself that God's still on the throne. All right. Next week. So in the Old Testament, we see a lot of instructions. Well, I want to jump in the, so as we read the Old Testament, consider the New Testament and how many instructions we see about unity. And where do you see some of those uh, sentiments in the book of Nehemiah? How does God use a broken wall to reunite his people across social status and vocation? Uh, So that's something to look forward. And then in the New Testament, just consider to, or continue to evaluate what is the heart of First John? What consistent themes do you see and how are they interconnected? It, First John to me is just really, truly one of the most beautiful books in the New Testament to read. Yeah, uh, I, I hate that our reading ends on Jer- or Nehemiah 12 and we don't get the last chapter, which I think is like the turn of card for the whole book. Um, but alas, uh, it's what we got. And so as we see Israel make these grandiose commitments to, to be obedient, to be faithful. Think where we've seen this before and how should we really feel about Israel continuing to make these commitments. Uh, and then New Testament, uh, as we keep going uh, with this theme of um, uh, uh, with the themes of the book, um, we read through John, unpack truth and love and all those sort of things that we kind of hit on already. Um, where else do we see writers kind of talk in this way, particularly like, let's say, Paul, speak about sort of love and truth and the primacy of love and and how should we then sort of think through that? Because I think at times in, in our context, we, we look at those things like as opposed to each other or very distinct from each other. But but as we look at John or, or even as Paul, um, think through, all right, how does the New Testament talk about love and truth together? So, yeah. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.